So good evening, and once again, thank you to Elias for reminding us that the clocks have changed. Well, I knew about the clock change part, but that means that tefillah moves ahead, and that means that we're going to have the rest of our sessions. There aren't too many more. There's one more next week, and then a few after Pesach. They will all be from 7.15 to 8.15 to accommodate tefillah. So also noted is that no matter when you do the Book of Lamentations, it's just it's just such a downer. But particularly in this happy season that we are in, I understand. All the same, it's part of that's what happens in the series. I've been to see. We're, we have to plug ourselves back. You know, Purim was we did Purim last time, which feels like a very long time ago. I guess it's because Purim is a very eventful sort of holiday. So we're back to the year 586 BCE again, which is one of those recurring years that keeps cropping up in some form or another throughout this series because it's one of the most important dates on the biblical calendar. That was the year that the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. That trauma was so enormous that it just shook the whole biblical world forever, and we haven't fully recovered from that shake even now. We continue to fast, we continue to be missing the ark and God's presence and prophecy, things that were directly impacted in that world 2,600 years ago, still have bearing on us, besides just that we remember it. It actually has changed our world forever. The Book of Lamentations is that poetic book written traditionally by Jeremiah, Yirmiyahu the prophet himself, who was the eyewitness to the whole thing. He, if you know, Let's just back, backtrack to Jeremiah, who was one of the stars of last year's survey. He was the prophet for the 40 years preceding the destruction of the temple, started in 627 BCE, and his main message was the destruction is coming. And then in the earlier part of his career, the message was, we can avoid it if we repent. And in the later part of his career, we can avoid it if we surrender to the Babylonians and just don't revolt. Those were his two messages, and it took him 41 years to say that, over and over and over again, as many people as he can get his hands on, including kings. But unfortunately, the population was against him. They didn't want to repent. But they also had a different political landscape where their view was, we should revolt against the Babylonians and we'll win. They were wrong. We revolted, there was a siege, the Babylonians came crashing in, it took a long time, bless the Jewish people for somehow resisting as long as they did, but the end was coming, Jeremiah begged the last king, Tzidkiyahu, surrender, do what you need to do to make this happen, but the king felt overpowered by the, uh, overpowered by the nobles and the military establishment who all wanted war. And so everybody ignored the poor prophet who then watched the temple go up in flames, watched watched the city get destroyed, watched many, many people get killed, watched many others get dragged off into exile. Interestingly, of course, Nebuchadnezzar, the wicked king, sent royal orders to the battlefront, don't lay a finger on the prophet Jeremiah, as we discussed way back when. Royal orders from this vicious monster, don't harm the prophet. And it wasn't because the prophet was a holy man. It was because the prophet was what we call pro-Babylonian. He was advocating surrender. So the Babylonians liked him. He was on their side, even though Jeremiah hated the Babylonians. It didn't matter. His policy, what he was hoping the king would adopt as policy, was what the Babylonians were hoping the people of Israel would adopt, because they didn't want war. They were very happy just collecting taxes of a vassal state in their empire. They didn't like battles. But boy, oh boy, were they good at it if they needed to go there. So Jeremiah watches the temples go up and temple goes up, go up in flames. Watches many of his people go off into exile. Basically, the Jewish people have been traumatized and they will never fully recover until the Messianic era from this trauma. The Book of Lamentations comes in. It's five chapters long. Because we haven't read it in a long time, we'll just review that of those five chapters, chapters one, two, four, five are all 22 verses each. And the third chapter, the smack dab middle one, is 66, or if you're a math major, 22 times 3. And the reason why it's always 22 is, there's a reason why it's 22 verses in each one. It's the alphabet. Simply arranged according to the alphabet, right? The first verse in chapter 1 begins with an aleph. second one begins with a bet. third one begins with a gimel. It's what we call an acrostic. There are 22 consonants in the Hebrew alphabet. And so there are 22 verses per chapter, that's how it goes, and then in chapter 3, you have 3 beginning with Aleph, then 3 beginning with Bet, 3 beginning with Gimel, 3 beginning with Dalit, and so on, which is why it's 22 times 3, so it's not some mystical Bible Cody type of thing, it's a basic poetic form that the author of Lamentations is using, and it makes a whole lot of sense, okay, so it's done according to the Aleph Bet, 
Now, the question I'll pose to you as the poetry majors here is why would, if you're trying to express this absolute catastrophe, why make it so artificial? Now, you can just imagine what he would do is get a parchment out there, write the alphabet first, right? That's probably what they would do. And then go ahead and make verses to that. If you want to express your torment, you want to express, okay, this is the greatest catastrophe that ever befell the Jewish people, just let it flow, right? Don't don't start writing an alphabet and then, oh man, Kuf is really hard. You know, if only if only I were up to pay, I could have done it here. Think about what a, an impediment that is for a poet, even a good one. You're stuck with this artificial. So why would a poet do this? Yeah. Hold on, one at a time. Yeah, Sherry. In order that people do remember it over the years, because a, a free flowing form. Individuals will remember parts here, parts there, but when it's in a form that's in effect a mnemonic, mnemonic, good. So easy. One reason for acrostics always is going to be the mnemonic. It's much easier to know. Okay, you know, if you're trying to do this by heart, and you're like, hmm, I just did the bet one. At least I know it's gimel, and that might trigger. And certainly over time, it helps with the ashray, for example. You, you just know what letter, right? So you have, you have to, that's part of what you have to remember. Okay, sorry. Um, yeah, Scott. Oh, hello. Yeah. Okay, sure. Can't tell you no. Tradition doesn't ascribe outright revelation to any biblical book besides the Torah in that in the way that you're describing. Right? Okay. You know, there, there's divine inspiration, there's prophecy, but but there's no expectation that God is dictating Divi- the book. Divine inspiration, so almost fully divine inspiration. Okay. That, that's just what he does for his children. A B C. Yeah. Okay, good. So so going so. There's definitely this element of what you would do for your children, and but I think what Sherry is saying is very important in terms of this mnemonic. There's also a different component of why you would set up a a poem from Aleph to Taf, and that's the same reason why you would say from A to Z, which means you're trying to give a sense of comprehensive destruction, and that's how you do it. Boy, oh boy, we've been destroyed from A A to Z. So in Hebrew, you would just say from Aleph to Taf. It's the same exact thing. Same with the Ashrei, by the way. When we're praising God from Aleph to Taf, what we're saying is, God, your praises are infinite. We can't express that no matter how much parchment and ink you give us. But we're going to praise you from Aleph to Taf. And that's the way of creating a sense of, of wholeness. So that's definitely part of the story as well. But it happens that there's another component besides the mnemonic, which certainly is there, besides the comprehensive thing. And that's what I'm going to want to focus on tonight. That when you have a poetic artifice, as artificial, as structured as it is in a moment where you don't feel any structure at all, it helps create a better message. And that's what we're going to see over the course of the evening, that the prophet is going to be using the alphabet to create a certain theme. And we'll, we'll talk about what that theme is in just a little while. Without further ado, chapter one. All five chapters have the same general point. We're in a really horrible state we're, we've been starving. Many people have died. Many people are dragged into exile. The temple lies in ruins. That's, there's just a lot of that thing. He's lamenting the disaster that has befallen the people. But there are ways of reflecting on this disaster. Chapter 1 has one leading theme, which you will see. I'm just going to read it, and it'll tell me what the theme is. Her enemies are now the masters. Her foes are at ease. Because the Lord has afflicted her, meaning Jerusalem, for her many trans- transgressions. Jerusalem has greatly sinned, therefore she has become a mockery. The yoke of my offenses is bound fast, lashed tight by his hand. The Lord is in the right, for I have disobeyed him. See, O Lord, the distress I am in. My heart is in anguish. I know how wrong I was to disobey. When they heard how I was sighing, there was none to comfort me. All my foes heard of my plight and exulted, for it is your doing. You have brought on the day that you threatened. Oh, let them become like me. Let all their wrongdoing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me for all of my transgressions. For my sighs are many and my heart is sick. So he's lamenting. He's lamenting a terrible plight. But what's he really saying? Just punishment. It's punishment. It's justice. Exactly. He's vindicating God. Seven times in that little paragraph that I just read to you, I selected the verses from the chapter that had those points. All the same, out of seven, seven verses out of 22 of the chapter, it's a pretty hefty theme. The prophet doesn't want to just say, oh, woe unto us, lamentation this, lamentation that. He's saying we're in a horrible spot. It's been really awful, but we deserve every drop of it. It's completely vindicating the divine justice. And in fact, if Jeremiah is in fact the author, he can literally say what we said here in, chapter, in uh, verse... No, 21. You have brought on the day that you threatened. In other words, look, I know that 
I've been saying myself for 40 years, that's been my message, that destruction is going to come, and behold, here it is. You told us so. That's how the prophet is speaking here. It really, it works, yeah. I have a question, because actually it shifts from the third person to the first person. Yes. You know, I don't know if it was at um, uh, 14 or not. You have to read the whole, for that. for any shifts like that, you have to read the chapter, just because, it again, sometimes Jerusalem is speaking, sometimes the prophet is speaking, sometimes God is quoted. How so you have different... Correct. All well taken. But, but to see the... You can actually see the voices shifting when you actually go through the chapter. So the theme is, okay, it's our fault. We have sinned. God is in the right. This is what we call Tzidduk Adin. We still recite that Tzidduk Adin after somebody dies. There's a whole ritual associated with that. Where when somebody dies, obviously it doesn't matter if that person is 107 and was healthy the whole way through. It's still awful for the family. There's no right time, right? We all know that. We've all been through, you know, whether ourselves or with friends watching this kind of thing happen. So the Tzidduk Adin is a means of justifying God at a moment when we don't feel that God is just. Or we feel, man, the world is so crummy and unfair. Why does this nice person have to die? Right, so that, that's what Tzidduk Adin is all about. Chapter 1 of the Book of Lamentations is a Tzidduk Adin for the nation. Justification of God's way is because nobody feels that things are very just right now. And if you remember the book of Job, well, how did Job begin his quest, his, his ongoing response to God after losing his children and his wealth and all of that? Hmm? He said the same thing. On the individual level, right? Job and the author of Lamentations both start looking at a terrible and unspeakable catastrophe, but they do it the same way. Job said, oh, it's all a gift from God. May God be blessed. And here the prophet is saying, well, look, it's crummy. I'm not going to say that this is a lovely situation, but we deserved it and God is totally fair. That's chapter one. Now, anybody know the Aleph bet? Yeah. All right. So the key is, so let's, let's march down the middle letters here. So we have Kaf, Lamed, Mem, Nun, Samach, Ayin, Pei, Tzadi, Kuf, right? There's no Pei, Pei, so, you know, it's just the Pei, right? So Ayin, Pei, Tzadi, etc. And lo and behold, when you get to source number two, if you just look at the Hebrew here, Al, Ele, Ani, Bochia, that's the Pasuk beginning with the letter Ayin, right? Da, 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 and then Yud, Zayin, the following one is Perasat, Zion, Biadeh. So it's Ayin, Pei, and the next one is going to be Tzadi, and so forth, right? Perfectly sensible. The alphabet is in order. I'm wasting your time, I know. But at some point it will become less of a waste of time, so fear not. Uh, source number two in English, for these things do I weep. My eyes flow with tears. Far from me is any comforter who might revive my spirit. My children are forlorn, for the foe has prevailed. Zion spreads out her hand. She has no one to comfort her. The Lord has summoned against Jacob. His enemy is all about him. Jerusalem has become among them a thing unclean. The Lord is in the right, for I have disobeyed him. Hear all you peoples, and behold my agony. My maidens and my youths have gone into captivity. So chapter 1 is all that. Marches through from Aleph to Taf, the comprehensiveness of it all, the Tzidu Kadin, the justification of the vindication of God's justice. It's our fault. God, you told us so. We have sinned right and left, and we all understood that this was the consequence of all of that. That's chapter 1. It's a very rational response. It's a sad response, but it's a very rational response. Just like Job's response was very sad, but rational. Saying, look, everything is a gift from God. And, okay, I'm not happy about it, but that's not the point. The point is I'm so grateful to God that I had these children and this wealth and all of this life before. And may God always be blessed. He took it away. Okay. That's the rational, almost eerily rational, as we discussed back in the the book of Job. Nobody's going to react to the loss of children for too long like that. And we discussed then that it's a stage. It's not, not the acting stage. It's a stage in one's mourning. Right? It's the, perhaps the first stage where a person of faith will cling to God and make sense of it all, or at least try very, very hard to make sense of it all. But then at some point it stops making a whole lot of sense. It can't make sense forever when, when catastrophe hits. And that's what chapter 2 is all about. Chapter 2, something very remarkable happens right off the bat. If you look at source number 3. Alas, the Lord in his wrath has shamed fair Zion, has cast down from heaven to earth the majesty of Israel. He did not remember his footstool on the day of wrath. The Lord has laid waste without pity all the, inha- all the inhabitants of Jacob. He has raised in his anger fair Judah's strongholds. He has brought low in dishonor the kingdom and its leaders. In blazing anger he has cut down all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn his right hand in the presence of the foe. 
that's uh, that's okay. It, uh, anything to interrupt this is fine with me. It's, it's, it's so it's so depressing. He has ravaged Jacob like flaming fire, consuming on all sides. He bent his bow like an enemy, poised his right hand like a foe. He slew all who. He lighted the eye. He poured out his wrath like fire in the tent of fair Zion. The Lord has rejected his altar, disclaimed his sanctuary, disdained his sanctuary. He has handed over to the foe the walls of its citadels. They raise a shout in the house of the Lord on a festival day, as on a festival day. So what's chapter 2 all about, at least so far? What's the theme? The theme of chapter 1 was, we're suffering, but we deserve it. What's chapter 2? Huh? God is our enemy. He's acting as our enemy here. God is angry. God is angry at us. Right? God has been so harsh. He hasn't used his right hand to help us, because he's right-handed like everybody. The world is right-handed. We've already discussed this many, many times. It will keep coming up. Um, God hasn't protected us. God has acted as an enemy. He's shot his own, well, I'm doing it wrong. He shot his own arrows at us. God is functioning like an enemy. Now, Oh, so Talia, you're nailing exactly the right point. In chapter 1, it's all about how God is in the right. We have sinned, we deserve it, and that's it. Chapter 2 doesn't sound that way anymore, does it? You're exactly right. It's a different tone. This tone is of one who said what he needed to say that and meant it. You know, Chapter 1 is a quite sincere chapter also. We deserve all of this. God told us so. God is in the right. We are in the wrong. Chapter 2, he's not saying God has been unfair. It's not a fairness issue in play. What is he saying? God has been brutally harsh to us. He's been an enemy to us. And look at all of our suffering. The chapter just goes on. How children are suffering. There's so much starvation. He pleads to God by the end of the chapter for some kind of help. The author of chapter 2, presumably is the same author as the author of chapter 1, is reflecting on the exact same tragedy, but he's having a chance to let it sink in a little bit more. Just like Job did, right? Job also went through a process. Started off with that nice, icily cold, philosophical stance of, it's all a gift from God, to yelling at his wife, who was trying to get him to blaspheme anyway. But then he starts cursing the day he was born, then acknowledging that God was like an enemy, and then starting to yell at God directly. Here, our poet, who's writing these lamentations, is doing the same thing. He's not yelling at God, but he's definitely acknowledging, wait a minute, God was really very harsh to us, and look how much we're suffering. And that's what this chapter is about. It doesn't vindicate God's justice anymore. Exactly what Talia was saying. Chapter 1 is about God is in the right. Chapter 2 is God has been very harsh to us. Even if we sinned, is it really right? Hmm? Absolute full force, yeah. Right, so Job goes through the same process. That seems to be the biblical way. And again, think, uh, let's just review the Job thing and do plug it into the national scene. A person of faith will try very hard to make sense of things. Everybody tries to make sense of things first, right? That's a normal reaction if you like to make sense of things in general. But even when things are unfathomable, very often the first reaction is to try to tie it together and especially to keep that God in the clear. Exactly what Talia was saying a moment ago. Chapter 1 is about keeping God good. Okay, my relationship with God is strong as ever. But by chapter 2, that's where the cracks start creeping in because he starts admitting, wait a second, this was an absolute disaster. Were we really that bad? Because I can't think of anything we could do that's that bad that would warrant what we are doing right now. Watching the temple go up in flames, watching the city fall apart, watching all these people getting killed, watching all these children dying of starvation, watching mothers eat those dead children for dinner because they're starving and have nothing else to eat. And really horrifying, vivid descriptions that are going on through this book. Really horrifying. At some point, the poet is asking, wait a second here. <laughs> is this really okay? Is, this, is it simply a matter of, oh, God said I told you so? Or is there something else going on? Now, let's, let's remember our alphabet again. And let's look at source number four in the Hebrew. Patu alayich pihem kol oyevayich. That the, your enemies open their mouths to you. Sharakuvayach harkushen. They hiss and gnash their teeth. 
Amrubi Lanu. They cry out, Hooray, we've ruined Israel. We've been hoping for this day for so long to defeat Israel, we finally got it. They're dancing in the streets. That's what the enemies are saying. God has done what He has planned. He's carried out His plan. God has destroyed pitilessly. And now the enemies are rejoicing. Alright, so let's, let's get our Alephet hats on. And what do you see here? The reverse, the ayin and the pay. Yeah, the pay comes before the ayin. The pay verse, all the other ones are in order in chapter 2. It's Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, ta-ta-ta-ta-ta, until you get to these two verses over here. And then suddenly the pay jumps out before the ayin. So, he knew the Aleph, Bet. In fact, he just used it as recently as chapter 1. So what's up with that? Oh, so something is going on. I, I agree, but it's, uh, we could even we could even push this one a little bit more. But first of all, let me just tell you what the, what many contemporary academics will say about this. We've actually found here's a fun word, A B C D R E S, meaning you know kids who write A B C. That's the root of the word A B C D. So the fancy word for that is A B C D R E S. Imagine just like a little tablet where kids learn to write the A B C's. So we found ancient Hebrew A B C D R E S. And some of them have the pay before the ayin, and some of them have the ayin before the pay. Meaning that this part of the alphabet was not yet fixed. And therefore, this was a legitimate alternative within an alphabet. Whereas nowadays, if a first grader came home and did that, we would correct that. Now it's fixed, the ayin comes before the pay. But 2,600 years ago, that wasn't yet necessarily the case. So they argue that since both are valid, well, you could use either one, depending on which you would like to do. And I think that that... It's true, that's fine. But it doesn't explain why chapter 1 is I and pay Tzadi, and why chapter 2 is pay I and Tzadi, and so on and so forth. So the Talmud jumps on something which is, I think, very meaningful. What does the word I in, it's a letter name, but what does the word I in mean? It's an I, and what's a pay? It's a mouth. In Old Hebrew, by the way, when you would draw these letters, they looked like an eye and a mouth, respectively. They don't in the script that we use, and that just, it's a bummer. It made a lot more sense in the good old days. Ancient Hebrew, they understood that a lot of these things should be the picture of the word that they represent. So let's just think about this for a moment on a conceptual level. What does it mean to put the eye before the mouth? That means that you see something, you reflect on it for a while, and then you speak later. And if you put the peb before the eye, and if you put your mouth before your eye, that means that you just blurt something out. You're discombobulated, you're emotionally a wreck, so you just let it go. And then later on, you get to reflect on it. The Talmud already exploits this eye and pay thing in source number five. Rabbi said in Rabbi Yochanan's name, why did he place the pay before the ayin? Because of the spies who spoke with their mouths what they had not seen with their eyes. They already use this wordplay. They already are playing around with mouth, eye, and they're trying to say that the spies spoke without, you know, without, the, without the proper reflection, without proper vision. I think that, the, so besides the jarring point, I think that that's the difference between chapter one and chapter two. They're both, it's the same author looking at the same destruction. The same suffering, the same misery. Chapter 1, he reflects first with his eyes, and then he speaks. And when you reflect first with your eyes and then speak, okay, it all makes sense. You are trying to make sense of the tragedy. And that's what he does. Everything is in order for him. He's making order out of this misery. And in chapter 2, when things are no longer so orderly anymore, well then... The mouth comes before the eye. He's trying not only to jar us, but I think he's trying... He, this flipperoo is an expression of his whole emotional state. Right? He's trying to say, okay, that's it. I'm just going to let it out now instead of just trying to reflect and make sense out of everything. It's out of order. Things are, I don't see order in the world. I see, I see trouble in the world. And I think that that's closer to the mark of what Megillat Eichav, the Book of Lamentations, is trying to do. So that's chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 3, as I mentioned, does it in triplicate, meaning there's three Alephs and three Bets, three Gimels, three Dalits, all the way down. And so it starts off in Source 6, and it's a very choppy chapter. I am the man who has known affliction under the rod of his wrath. Me he drove on and on in unrelieved darkness. On none but me, he brings down his hand again and again. He starts off again just reflecting on his misery, that God is beating up on him without cease. He has worn away my flesh and skin. He has shattered my bones. 
All around me he has built misery and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. Starts off just like chapter 2. God is like an enemy. He's beating up on me. I'm utterly miserable. That goes on for a while. And then he keeps right on going into the Zion zone. To recall my distress and my misery was wormwood and poison. Whenever I thought of them, I was bowed low. But this do I call to mind, therefore I have hope. Right in the middle of Zion, he just turns on a dime. After wallowing for quite a while, for 20 verses, the first third of the chapter, he suddenly turns around and says, I suddenly think of this and now I have hope. The kindness of the Lord is not ended. His mercies are not spent. They are renewed every morning. Ample is your grace. The Lord is my portion, I say with full heart. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who trust in him, to the one who seeks him. That's quite a turnaround. It's, a, it's actually one of the most powerful moments in the whole Miggy life, you're, if you're riding with it. Because most of it is depressing. And suddenly, mid-chapter 3, and just on a dime, he has no reason to change his mood. The destruction is still there. No prophet has come recently to predict some messianic something. But suddenly he just bursts forth with hope. He knows that things are going to be okay. And then calls on the people to repent. And then he goes right back to despair. Chapter 3 is all over the place. He really starts off truly miserable. Then he gains hope. He really looks to the future. Hopes that the Jews will repent. But then again, starts to fall apart again. And then, you can almost predict now. All right, so we have an Olivet thing. So which letter is going to come first in this chapter? Is it going to be the I or is it going to be the pay? Huh? The answer is the answer is it's going to be the pay again. All right, he's he starts making a little bit of sense somewhere in there, but overall he's overwhelmed. He's miserable. God is still the enemy. He falls right back into despair by the end. And here are our results in source number seven. Look at the Hebrew. Once again, our enemies open up their mouths to mock us. We're terrified and we're shattered. I'm crying. I'm crying my eyes out because of the destruction of my nation. Once again, here's the ayin coming after the pay, right? Until God looks down. My eyes are bringing all kinds of, of grief, even more than the women of the city. So once again, the pay comes before the ayin, because again, he can't make sense or order out of any of this. He's really, really struggling, just like Job. It's really the exact same process as what Job went through, where he started off making sense of it all, but within a short while, he was breaking down. The way that Lamentations achieves this is with, is with this pay ayin switch, by saying that I'm going to put my mouth before the eye. Very good. Uh, so that's exactly what he's going through right over now. And uh, yeah, it, it comes out in the poetry. So here's a, what I love about this example. I'm not such a poetry major, but I, but I, I, I love biblical poetry. But I think there's a great example where specifically the artifice of Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, all the way down, that gives him a certain tool to express his grief. He can now say, I tried to make sense of it all. I had it going great for a whole chapter. Now I'm just falling apart. I no longer see order in this. I'd rather just blurt out my deeper emotions, which are those of misery. And again, coming, I like the traditional Jeremiah authorship very, very much, particularly because he really did know it was coming for 40 years. And he staked his whole prophetic career on that. It was not a surprise when the temple went up in flames to him. It was a surprise to the nation, but not to him. He knew it was coming all along. That's the first thing that God told him. And it never went away. But it doesn't matter. There's a world of difference between knowing that it's going to happen and watching it with your own eyes. Right? And that's what's overwhelming him here. At the beginning, he's like, oh yeah, that's that's Jack. God said this for 40 years. I've been marking my calendar. Here we go. But then, but wait a minute. Look what I just saw. There's, there's nothing that could justify it in his mind. And that's what's happening over here. Chapter 4 goes off describing, again, just the absolute horrors. Chapter 4 is probably the most vivid of all of these chapters in terms of just describing how awful the, the destruction really was. Source 8. Better off were the slain of the sword than those slain by famine 
who pined away as though wounded for lack of fruits of the field. At least if you got killed by a sword, you were dead. You didn't have to suffer anymore. The people who were starving for prolonged periods of time during the siege, it was absolutely horrible. With their own hands, tender-hearted women have cooked their children. Such became their fare in the disaster of my poor people. He's just crying on behalf of all the people, what the horrors that he saw in Jerusalem. The Lord vented all his fury, poured out his blazing wrath. He kindled a fire in Zion, which consumed its foundations. It was for the sins of her prophets, the iniquities of her priests, who had shed, her, shed in her midst, midst the blood of the just. So going back to what Talia said before, here you see him trying, he's trying so hard to go back to chapter 1 here. Right? After saying God was an enemy and look at the suffering, he then says it's because we've sinned. He tries to get that theme back on the books here. He's trying so hard to make sense of it, but it, but it, it isn't working. If you read through the entire chapter, you see trying, finding that, looking for that hope, looking for that order. It's, it's just not going to happen yet, David. Who is he referring to when he talks about the sins of her prophets? That is an excellent question. Okay, quick, quick, quick biblical prophet lesson for just a moment. It's a really confusing point, which is why you're confused and why I'm confused too. But I will tell you this. Biblical Hebrew has no word for false prophet. Uh. Biblical Hebrew refers to true prophets and false prophets as prophet. Not in Tanakh. We use it. It's a rabbinic term. For us, it's very easy. Miriam, you're exactly right. Chazal solved the difficulty by just creating a term. Navi Shaker is a false prophet, and Navi Amet, or just a Navi, is a real one. Done. Biblical Hebrew doesn't have that term. So we usually figure it out from the context. So, for example, in the book of Jeremiah, Yirmiyahu, where Yirmiyahu is battling against false prophets, they're called Navi also. They're never called Navi Sheker. But we know that they're false because they're against a prophet that we know to be true. So that makes it easier from a context point of view. In this context, going back to David's question, we know that they're false because of the context. He's condemning the sinful priests and prophets. These are the establishment who upheld, they, they, they were lot, these are the false prophets that Jeremiah was battling against. But they're called prophets. They're not called false prophets in Tanakh. If you already look at the Targum, the ancient Aramaic translation, it already has Neviyah Shikra, what Miriam was saying. The term Nevi Sheker is very, very old, but not biblical. Yeah. What were you going to say, Shadow? Perhaps it's not so black It shouldn't be, yeah. It's all true, but, but but these were not prophets that were given given prophecy. In other words, the point is that these are people who spoke in God's name and certainly reflected the religious establishment at that time. Poor Jeremiah had to battle priests and prophets every day because they were the establishment and he was the outsider. So, but, but he came in there and said, okay, but you're corrupting the temple. They, have so, the power. they did have the power, but that was a problem. That's it. So, so, that's what, so that's what this verse is lamenting. But David is raising an important point that if until you know that prophet could refer just as easily to a false prophet and, and context is what is required, it sounds very weird. But that's, that's, who the, that's, our, that's who our prophet is condemning, the, the, the false prophets in their midst, who again, the false prophets, their standard message was, we should revolt against the Babylonians because God will surely help us. So... So Jeremiah was saying, no, 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 God told me that we should not revolt, we're going to suicide. But the other guys were saying, okay, well, we're prophets too, and we should revolt, and God will surely help us. And so the people who already were inclined to listen to those other guys continued to do so. That was to Jeremiah's extreme chagrin, if you recall that book over there. But that's what, that's, that's what he's lamenting over here. Okay, so he's trying very hard to somehow justify parts of the elements of the, of the destruction, but he never goes back to chapter 1 because he can't. And therefore, chapter 4 does the same thing that chapters 2 and 3 did. If you go to source 9, 
Penei Hashem Chilakam, Lo Yosif Labitam, Penei Kohanim Lo Nasau, Uzkenim Lo Chananu. Right? God has turned away from them. He should, they showed no regard for the priests or the elders. Odenu Tichlena Ineno Elezratenu Hev Havel Bitzviatenu Tzipinu Elgoi Lo Yoshia. Even now, we look for deliverance in vain. We we're hoping for some nation to help us, but of course the nation will not. Once again, Pei comes before the Ayin. Right, the same pattern that we've already seen in chapters 2 and 3. The author's trying to make sense out of the world. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey. But the pay is the tip-off. That's how you know the emotional state, which simply is reflected through the content of the, of the lamentation. Then we get to chapter 5. Chapter 5 is 22 verses long also. But now the author does something different. Now there's no Aleph, Bet at all. It doesn't go Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, etc. There are 22 verses, the right number, but there's no order whatsoever. It's just a complete breakdown in the Aleph, Bet. I'm not going to show you a pay before the I in here, because there is none. There's, it's just a, random letters. The first letter begins with Zion. first verse begins with Zion in this verse, if you see verse 1 over here. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Behold and see our disgrace. Gone is the joy of our hearts. Our dancing is turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us that we have sinned. Because of this, our hearts are sick. Because of these, our eyes are dimmed. Because of Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. It's just an absolute breakdown. There's no longer any sense of even trying to make sense or order out of any of this. He realizes we're just in a total disaster zone. God, please help us. And as a result, the Olivet vanishes. There's no longer any order. He's not even trying to make any order out of this. And the last four verses are the, the traumatic verses that then carry into the whole Second Temple period. But you, O Lord, source 11, are enthroned forever. Your throne endures through the ages. Why have you forgotten us utterly, forsaken us for all time? Take us back, O Lord, to yourself and let us come back. Renew our days as of old. For truly you have rejected us, bitterly raged against us. The last word of the entire book. And that, God, you've rejected us, and it seems permanently. Right? This trauma of the destruction, as we discussed when we did back in the book of Jeremiah, and we'll see, we see it here also, is it wasn't just a very bad thing that happened. People really thought this was the end of the God-Israel relationship. And that's what you hear very loud and clear from the author of Lamentations. Like, is this it? Have you utterly rejected us? Please come back, but it looks like you're not. It's this horrified religious stance of the prophet over here, which carries over into the whole Second Temple period. I just completed today a, a six-part course for Yeshiva University, adult education, dealing with the Second Temple books, Chagai, Zechariah, Malachi, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther also. We've already done much of that, where that was the issue. The issue was that post-destruction, as they're returning to Israel, nobody was sure if God is still around. Nobody was sure if the Torah is supposed to continue. Nobody was sure, does Israel have a, a role to play? Elvis has left the building. Yeah. It, it's a, hmm? Elvis has left the building. The man or woman of faith, Elvis, has claimed to God's initial promise. Also, very good. And that's what, the prophets, that's what the prophets were all about. The prophets said that God's initial promise is as true as ever. That is exactly right. So, but, but Lamentations doesn't give us that prophetic faith. Lamentations is speaking as the people were thinking. Right? This Lamentation is not just Jeremiah's personal reflections on the destruction. He's speaking for the nation. And that's what you, that's what you feel over here. You really feel the sense of this is where the nation was at, at that moment. They really feel there is no further, there is no future. Yeah. Yes, excellent question, and absolutely. He had messianic prophecies, which I, tr- I treat as the most reliable prophecies in the history of the world. Because given what he saw for his entire career down to its climax of the destruction, for him to get prophecy to see beyond that is incredible. So your point is exactly, I'll fuss about it now more since you're raising it, which because I think it's so important. The prophetic perspective is what got us through this difficult period. Prophecy was able to see beyond what regular people could see. Regular people saw what, what I think we would have seen the same thing. It really looks like this is the end. There's no more temple. God's presence is gone. We're going into exile back to Babylonia and back to Egypt, meaning 
Abraham came from Babylonia. Now we're going back there. Our nation came from Egypt. Now we're going back there. The land of Israel is desolate. We've, it's, it's done. It really was undone. That's how the people see the world, and I, I understand that. Jeremiah, as a prophet in his book, is able to transcend that perspective and say, God has told me there's a future here. We're going to return. The Babylonians are going to collapse. We're going to return to the land of Israel. But no, rationally speaking, it would have been very difficult to believe him. So the book of Lamentations isn't speaking with that prophetic, transcendent perspective. It's speaking of the perspective of the people. It's beautifully encapsulating how they see the world, which is, even if you're a very righteous person living at that time, it really looks like it's the end. So he's pleading, God, bring us back. It looks like you've rejected us forever. It's a plea. It hasn't totally despaired. But it's not coming from the prophetic perspective of, God hears Rachel's voice crying, and don't worry, says God, the children are coming back. Prophecy can have that. But people... In the middle of that despair, it's very difficult to have that. Megan, what are you going to say? Uh, yeah, I was just going to say that the rabbis picked up for our, um, uh, at least for me, weekly prayer, that we say that all the time. And in a certain way, I guess, in this context, to just never lose uh, that connection. Excellent. So what you're saying, Megan, is critical not only for that verse itself, but a very important rabbinic tradition, which I can mention here. Actually, I'm not allowed to end... With verse 22. I have to go back and read verse 21. And when we read it in synagogue, when we read this book in synagogue, we are forced to reread that verse that you just quoted, verse 21, right? So I'll read it. Take us back, O Lord, to yourself and let us come back. Renew our days as of old. It would have been easier in Hebrew. But in the meantime, tradition demands that no, we can never end a biblical book on a sour note. Even though there are several books that do. The book of Kohelet does. So tradition makes us read the second to last verse again, the book of Malachi does. Once again, we have to zing back and the book of Isaiah does. So whenever any book ends on a really horrible note, like the word ra, bad, or this, which is, oh my goodness, you've rejected us forever. It's pretty bleak. All right, well, tradition won't allow us to do that because our tradition is one of hope. No matter how down it is, even if the biblical book itself ends on a bleak note, tradition won't allow us to end that. So we have to go back to the second to last. Yeah. Job is that Job himself is the only one suffering. Whereas here, it's the whole people suffering. That, that's the difference. Yeah. Really it's just me to say, but if it's everyone, it makes it that much harder. Yeah, no, it's a national thing. This was the catastrophe, yeah, Charlie. How much do people really care that the future was going to be okay? I mean, you think about people in Auschwitz and I'm not sure. You know, look, I, I can't. I'm not going to try to pretend that I can creep into the mind of anybody no, who I, went I, through I, those I, horrors. I think if you tell somebody, even in the depths of despair, that the Jewish people is not going to come to an end, and in fact, we're going to rebuild a state and we're, our population is going to grow once again, even if that doesn't take away a drop of pain and suffering that they're going through. Somewhere in some of those people, that might be incredible. It doesn't solve their problem today. You're right. It doesn't cure. It's not like, oh, well, in that case, bring on the barbed wire. It doesn't work that way, right? We all all understand humanly that they're still suffering. But if they're able, if they have enough mental capacity at that stage in the game to look beyond, it's no small thing to tell somebody suffering you have a future, right? That, That in two generations, your grandchildren are going to be free and dancing in the streets of Jerusalem. It's not the same as this will end now. That's what they really want. It's different. And that's Jeremiah's point, right? It's like build houses. You're in the Babylonian exile for 70 years. So if you just got there, that's really awful, right? But to know that your grandchildren might come back as opposed to we're here forever and the relationship is over, that changes your life also for the good. And and so that's that's what this book is coming to terms with, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty horrifying. Okay, there's one thing I like to, in today's prayer books, in some prayer books, it says, uh, renew our days as in the days of old. Very um, reasonable here at this time, but in our time, that uh, 
it's a pretty strange request because of some of those days. Well, you have to pick the right days. That's the point of this verse. The point is that we want to restore a pristine, good state. Obviously, not our, right. nobody's glorifying here, all of our past. No, no, here, at this time, no, no. absolutely, the days of old were before the destruction of But the you world. still have to pick the very specific times within that range. Not all times in biblical history were so good. No, it was selective even then. I agree with you, but I'm saying... I, I agree with you, but I'm saying that even when this verse was written, you still have to be very selective about what days of old you want restored. Before you were cooking your children for dinner. Fine, okay, good, yeah, totally. Maybe you said it before I came, but what book follows this chronologically? This zone, the period of the destruction includes Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Right, you have you have this. You have a, you have Psalm 137 as part of that orbit. You probably have the Book of Ovadiah is also part of this. So they're they're there. They're in the they're in the destruction zone. Then there's a pause for a while of 60 years until Haggai and Zechariah roll in. So there's a huge gap of, and it almost seems like that's deliberate also that the people, oh my gosh, prophecy is gone, the temple's gone, we're in exile. Maybe it's really over. There, there really is the sense that God has left them. When God speaks to Haggai and Zechariah, they bring, they make a big point about this, like, hey, we're getting prophecy. God really is still with us, and they have to keep on emphasizing that point. It really wasn't clear. I think your contextual point is very well taken. If you want to have one glimmer of hope in chapter five, I think it's nice that he still wrote it with twenty-two verses. <laughs> it's like there's one, you know, still trying to say that there's some order somewhere. I may not see it right now. The alphabet has fallen apart. But the fact that he still keeps that artifice in play is meaningful in that sense. So, you know, going back to Sherry's point about the individual versus the nation, obviously the whole point is that when an individual suffers, so this, that fate can be restored, and the world, here it looks like the world is over for the entire Jewish people. That's, that's the point of the book, and that's the point of this, this very critical date. So, to go, to go, just to review what we have seen, and then we'll call it a night, the Olivet is the key to the book. It's not just some nice artifice where it's more than just a mnemonic. It's more than just totality, even though both of those things are there. The author specifically uses the Aleph-Bet structure in order to show breaks in that order. First, in chapters 2, 3, 4, by saying that the peh comes before the eye and that the, that the mouth comes before the eye, that it's no longer possible to make sense out of everything. And finally, to allow the breakdown, entire breakdown, that there's no more Aleph-Bet at all. And that, the Book of Lamentations, I think, is such a winner, even though it's depressing as all anything, exactly because it doesn't try to solve this problem. It was simply speaking truly from where the people were at, rather than say, it goes back to Charlie's point, right? Rather than just sugarcoating it at the end somehow, that's not where the people are at. The people really feel that this is the end, and the book needs to say that, and it does. It concludes on the, the scariest of notes. Have you forgotten us utterly? For truly, you have rejected us, bitterly raged, against us. And that's, the author is doing the same thing that the author of the book of Job did, which is that a religious personality has to keep relating to God through all of this. That's what Job does. He's constantly struggling with God in his book, but God is right on the radar. Same thing here. God doesn't leave the picture. The author is not saying, oh, since we've gone through this, God is out. It's, It's relating to God, but because the situation is so bad, it's a struggle. It's not something that's just, oh, easy answers or sugarcoating it or saying this is all for the good. <laughs> Our author doesn't think this is all for the good one bit. Our author thinks this is a disaster, right? Because uh, it is. And that's, and it's at a process. There's not one emotional faith state that is prescribed when people go through a catastrophe, whether individual or national, right? There's a process. Sometimes you're trying to make sense of it. Sometimes you're sort of making sense of it. Sometimes you're just lashing out. Sometimes all order falls apart. And the point of the book is exactly to say that our relationship with God is eternal, and that's for us to pursue. And simultaneously, we can't always make sense of everything, and that's okay. That's a mature level of faith. In other words, if we think we have to have all the answers in order to have good faith, we haven't, gr- we haven't quite grown up yet. Right? The, the world that we live in, both present and certainly in this past world, there are things that we can't understand, and that only God understands. And even if we trust that God understands, that's what chapter 1 is about, that doesn't solve the issue at all, David. Two questions. Okay. Does Job have the functional equivalent of Hadesh-Mayim since we've compared the two? And secondly, 
Is it possible that the Chadesh Yomenik Kekadim is an add-on and doesn't really belong there or wasn't there because it's not expanded upon and it's the only statement of its type. Um, so I wonder whether it was really there to begin with or a gloss. I doubt it's a gloss, but let's, these are two totally different things. In terms of Job, actually, there is a Chadesh Yomenik He has ten new children, and he gets his wealth back, and all of that. So he ends up in a happily ever after state, although it always worries me, because you can't replace ten dead children with ten new children, right? In other words, it's better that he ends up with ten children. I'm happy for him, at least there's some relief in the story. But it doesn't mean that everything is back to where it was. The only thing that would make that happen is if God brought those ten children back which isn't part of the game plan, right? So so it's a Chadesh Yemenikikedem-esque thing to at least have a happier ending, but it certainly doesn't cure the problem. Whereas on the national level, the restoration and the rebuilding of the temple and God's return, it wouldn't take away the horrors that the earlier generation faced, but on the national level, that would be fantastic. Right, going back to Charlie's point. In terms of the later edition, I have no reason to think that it's a later edition. I can't tell you no. Sometimes there are later editions to books. But... The idea of the Jewish people having hope is as ancient as we are. Right? This is not a foreign idea. So even when things are bleak, I mean, throughout the book, he's pleading for pity, for mercy. In chapter 3, there's that wonderful turnaround with hope. The fact that there's hope toward the end of the book is critical and normal. I think it is important to note that it's not the last verse. It's the second to last. In other words, he's pleading for hope, but it's a plea. Because it's like, God, please bring us, restore our faith. Because right now what I see as a human being is we're done. I think that's an excellent depiction of what the people were going through. They didn't want to accept the finality of all of this. And indeed, they were right not to accept it. We went on as a people. But I understand why somebody then would say this really could be it. So, so there's no reason to believe that it's an addition. Not to mention, if it were an addition, then there would only be 21 verses, and that would be a bummer. It seems like he, he wants there to be 22. Yeah. It's striking, especially the way you've been describing it. It's Correct. Correct. It's not intellectualized, not glorified, not It's very real. Correct. In a sense, that's what we would read it. We should do like with Pesach, where we don't remember our ancestors coming from Egypt. We, we live it. Are our Correct. Very good. And it's just, in that sense, maybe that's what we should be taking from it. Not that we should be, you know, uh, depressed all the time, but to under, that's to understand what they were going through. Yeah, and, and it's, it's as vivid as can be. Yeah. Yeah, but to emphasize the absolute need, the need for keeping hope alive, the mouth before the eye may be keep affirmation, keep proof, keep the hope with your words, uh, and look. And then you'll see what you're going to manifest. And it's required. Very good. Uh, very well put. So I think that's what this book is about. The book is about reflecting on the b- darkest moment in Jewish history, or certainly in biblical history, really as dark as it can be, where people thought this was the end, first making total sense out of it, then eventually breaking that down, but at the same time, A, never giving up hope, and B, never giving up the ongoing dialogue with God even, just trying very, very hard to continue to talk to God even though we're not really sure why this is happening or how we could possibly have deserved it. But all the same, the dialogue goes on. And this book, again, it's a, I think it's a gem, as depressing as it is. I think it's a very important work that, that has remained part of our tradition. On that happy note, we have one last gem in this segment of our series coming up next week.